This is Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic. And now your host, Michael O'Fallon. I just wanted to take a moment at the start of the show to thank all of you that responded with financial support over the last several days since our last episode. And your efforts and sacrifice for the continuance of our programming are greatly appreciated. And while we still have a hill to climb financially, your efforts have greatly helped us to be able to stay focused and forward thinking. Well, as you know, several years ago, We at Sovereign Nations had stripped all of the ads off of our websites, and we have attempted to do everything ad-free for the sake of our content. And over the years, it has been my other companies, my personal other companies, their profits and revenues from my own pocket that have ensured that we sounded the clarion call to the world that critical race theory, the disrupting and dismantling of nations, the World Economic Forum, Open Society Foundations, and attacks upon the mission of the church were coming and that we needed to do something about it. Thankfully, we did light a fuse back in 2017, or you could also say that we started rolling a snowball down a mountain that has turned into an avalanche against this nonsense. And I'm encouraged to know that I have faithful partners with us on the journey that must continue. And we'll be giving you some more information in the coming days about how you can partner with us in this next year to be incredibly effective. Because as you know, as you look around you, now is our epoch of time. It's our time to step up. And you can step up with us and to resist the coming night. And we can do this together if there are enough of us to grow sovereign nations and to be truthful, to lead as the clarion voice in the battle that is before all of us. And if you have never supported us before but are edified and empowered by our content, I just ask if you could please consider supporting us today in any amount, as it will help us to keep our staff and our regularity of content, not just continuing, but increasing in regularity. But on this Wednesday of the middle of February in 2022, I want to talk to you about a few things that you should never forget. You should never forget the decades that have passed from pre-World War I until now. You should never forget that the American hero and Republican Teddy Roosevelt was a strong eugenicist. To quote Teddy Roosevelt, quote, I wish very much that the wrong people could be prevented entirely from breeding. And when the evil nature of these people is sufficiently flagrant, this should be done. Criminals should be sterilized and feeble-minded persons forbidden to leave offspring behind them, end quote. Now, just so you'll understand, this was indeed a fairly common position in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, particularly among the progressives of the era. The progressives accepted the theory of evolution and sought to actively apply it, whereas the conservatives of the time, well, they thought that eugenics was lunacy. But eugenicists of the era included such people as Margaret Sanger. You'll know her as the founder of what would become Planned Parenthood. And W.E.B. Du Bois, 
or DuBose, as some would say, who was probably the most famous black intellectual of the time. And let's remember that just a few years later, Woodrow Wilson, the original architect of a world that had a new world order, championed the trend towards anti-American sovereignty. In his presidential campaign in 1912, he told his compatriots, quote, we are in the presence of a new organization of society, end quote. He would go on to say that our time marks, quote, a new social stage, a new era of human relationships, a new stage setting for the drama of life. And also, the old political formulas do not fit the present problems. They read now like documents taken out of a forgotten age. What Thomas Jefferson had once taught is now, he contended, utterly out of date. It is, quote, what we used to think in the old-fashioned days when life was very simple, end quote. Well, above all, Wilson wanted to persuade his compatriots to get, quote, beyond the Declaration of Independence, end quote. And remember that it was Woodrow Wilson who championed the League of Nations, the forerunner of the United Nations. So just a reminder that this was something that Woodrow Wilson had actually started back over 110 to 120 years ago. And it was in that spirit that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, massively increased the size of the federal government, centralized and bureaucratically exploded the federal government, creating newly enshrined federal government agencies like the Civil Works Administration, the CWA, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FERA, Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, and the FDA eventually. With Roosevelt's successor, Harry Truman, beginning the Central Intelligence Agency. And these are all just reminders making sure that you never forget these things. Just a reminder that you should never forget Dwight D. Eisenhower's powerful warning in his final speech as President of the United States. And Eisenhower said, quote, A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence 
economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists, and it will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to, and largely responsible for, the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of, the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists and laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research, partly because of the huge costs involved. A government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet, in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. End quote. And just a reminder, let's remember John F. Kennedy giving another grave warning to America in his speech to the national press at the Waldorf Astoria, where he stated the following. This is just a few years later. Quote, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. You bear heavy responsibilities these days, and an article I read some time ago reminded me of how particularly heavy the burdens of present-day events bear upon your profession. You may remember that in 1851, the New York Herald Tribune, under the sponsorship and publishing of Horace Greeley, 
employed as its London correspondent, an obscure journalist by the name of Karl Marx. We are told that foreign correspondent Marx, stone broke and with a family ill and undernourished, constantly appealed to Greeley and managing editor Charles Dana for an increase in his munificent salary of $5 per installment, a salary which he and Engels ungratefully labeled as the, quote, lousiest petty bourgeois cheating, end quote. But when all his financial appeals were refused, Marx looked around for other means of livelihood and fame, eventually terminating his relationship with the Tribune and devoting his talents full time to the cause that would bequeath the world the seeds of Leninism, Stalinism, Revolution, and the Cold War. If only this capitalistic New York newspaper had treated him more kindly. If only Marx had remained a foreign correspondent, history might have been different. And I hope all publishers will bear this lesson in mind the next time they receive a poverty-stricken appeal for a small increase in the expense account from an obscure newspaper man. I have selected as the title of my remarks tonight, quote, The President and the Press, end quote. Some may suggest that this would be more naturally worded, the president versus the press, but those are not my sentiments tonight. President Kennedy would go on to say the following, quote, My topic tonight is more sober, one of concern to publishers as well as editors. I want to talk about our common responsibilities in the face of a common danger. The events of recent weeks may have helped to illuminate that challenge for some, but the dimensions of its threat have loomed large on the horizon for many years. Whatever our hopes may be for the future, for reducing this threat or living with it, there is no escaping either the gravity or the totality of its challenge to our survival and to our security, a challenge that confronts us in unaccustomed ways, in every sphere of human activity. This deadly challenge imposes upon our society two requirements of direct concern, both to the press and to the president. Two requirements that may seem almost contradictory in tone, but which must be reconciled and fulfilled if we are to meet this national peril. I refer first to the need for a far greater public information and second, to the need for far greater official secrecy. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship 
and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that is in my control and no official of my administration, whether his rank high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts that they deserve to know. End quote. And then President Kennedy was assassinated, the last president to be assassinated just two years later. And then President Kennedy's successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, who installed what is called the Great Society. Well, he began to take things in another direction, another direction that has led to mass poverty and people being dependent upon governance today. And assassinations became the norm of the decade with Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King being assassinated, with Cuba falling to Marxism, with China beginning its cultural revolution, and with Vietnam going Marxist, with the Soviet Union staying communist and the Iron Curtain in full force across Eastern Europe. And during this time... Some other powerful, brilliant, and soon-to-be-influential men were beginning to get strong voices in the United States in politics. Brand new voices. One such voice was a man by the name of Henry Kissinger. His doctoral dissertation was titled, Peace, Legitimacy, and the Equilibrium, a study of the statesmanship of Castlereagh and Metternich. In his Ph.D. dissertation, Kissinger first introduced the concept of legitimacy, which he defined as, Legitimacy, as used here, should not be confused with justice. It means no more than an international agreement about the nature of workable arrangements and about the permissible aims and methods of foreign policy. An international order accepted by all of the major powers is legitimate whereas an international order not accepted by one or more of the great powers is revolutionary and hence dangerous. Well, thus, when after the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the leaders of Britain, France, Austria, Prussia, and Russia agreed to cooperate in the Concert of Europe to preserve the peace. And in Kissinger's viewpoint, this international system was legitimate, because it was accepted by the leaders of all five of the great powers of Europe. Notably, Kissinger's approach to diplomacy took it for granted that as long as the decision makers in the major states were willing to accept the international order, then it is legitimate. In other words, if they accept the international order of what everybody agrees, then it's legitimate. If they go against the international order, then they are illegitimate. And remember, this was his dissertation from the 1950s. This is what's going on today. And so if there is international order agreeing that something is legitimate, even if one sovereign nation understands that no, this is wrong, or let's say that individuals say that no, this is wrong, or a state within the United States says, whoa, hold on a second, we can't do this, this is wrong. Well, those public opinions is basically how they're going to be looked at. They are dismissed as irrelevant to the larger question of staying with the global order. 
Well, Kissinger remained at Harvard as a member of the faculty in the Department of Government, where he served as the director of the Harvard International Seminar between 1951 and 1971. And it was in 1955 that he was a consultant to the National Security Council's Operation Coordinating Board. During 1955 and 1956, he was also study director in nuclear weapons and foreign policy at the Council of Foreign Relations. From 1956 to 1958, he worked for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund as director of its special studies project. He served as the director of the Harvard Defense Studies Program between 1958 and 1971. In 1958, he also co-founded the Center for International Affairs with Robert Bowie, where he served as its associate director. Now, outside of academia, he served as a consultant to several government agencies and think tanks, including the Operations Research Office, the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, Department of State, and also the RAND Corporation. Now, he was keen to have a greater influence on U.S. foreign policy as his previous dissertations would lead you to believe. And eventually, Kissinger became foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaign of Nelson Rockefeller, supporting his bids for the Republican nomination in 1960, 1964, and lastly in 1968. Now, Kissinger first met Richard Nixon in 1967 and would soon serve as the national security advisor and the secretary of state in two administrations. Kissinger's approach to foreign diplomacy always echoed his original thesis that there must be international order and cooperation for there to be legitimacy of a nation's decisions. So, forget national sovereignty. In the late 60s and early 70s, Kissinger also had a profound influence on a young man by the name of Klaus Schwab. But within the supposedly long shadow of Henry Kissinger was also another man. A man who had a tremendous influence on the same sort of outlook that Kissinger had in regards to the nation-state model, replacing the sovereign state model, but also in regards to both regional and global governance. And that man's name was that of the recently deceased, Zbigniew Brzezinski. He served as counsel to Lyndon B. Johnson and as well, the national security advisor for President Jimmy Carter. Brzezinski also served as the primary organizer of what is commonly known as the Trilateral Commission, which was primarily financed and founded by David Rockefeller back in 1973. And the Trilateral Commission represents influential commercial and political interests that share a commitment to private enterprise, trade, and multilateralism, as well as global governance between North America, Europe, and Asia. Now, Brzezinski would write a book back in the early 70s that defined the path that most global governance would take in the next 50 years. It was called, and it's very hard to get nowadays, I think there might be another reprint coming, but the copy that I got several years ago was extremely expensive. This book was called Between Two Ages, The Technotronic Era written in 1971. And in his book from 1971, let me just remind you, Brzezinski would state the following, quote, Nation-state as a fundamental unit of man's organized life has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concepts 
of the nation-state, end quote. So, in 1971, Brzezinski would already be stating that the world and the way that it worked in 1971 was already past the constitutional and democratic model. Brzezinski was stating that multinational corporations were already doing the planning and the acting of governance and long-term planning that nations were not. Because nations, of course, are mostly about maintaining. Maintaining order. Maintaining peace. Maintaining society. Maintaining the economic models of the nation. They're not progressive. Brzezinski goes on to say in the same book, Quote, the technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. End quote. So here, Brzezinski, in 1971, is stating that as we move into what he calls the technotronic era, the governance of our nation-state and our globe will be governed by an elite class, unrestrained by traditional values. And if that isn't scary enough... He would state that this new world order, if you will, will be a surveillance state, with any and all information about you being able to be called up instantaneously by authorities. Now, he would go on to say, and again, this was written, I'll say it again, just a reminder, this was written in 1971. And remember that this man would then be the national security advisor to the president of the United States, leading the Trilateral Commission. And he says, quote, In the technotronic society, the trend would seem to be towards the aggregation of the individual support of millions of uncoordinated citizens, easily within the reach of magnetic and attractive personalities, exploiting the latest communications techniques to manipulate emotions and control reason. End quote. So Brzezinski is stating that in the not-so-distant future, by the way, that's today, that the governmental society would use propaganda through mass communication to manipulate emotions and control reason. Now, you might say, control reason? Now, just as a reminder here, reason as a noun is defined as, quote, a cause, explanation, or justification for an action or event. As a verb is defined as, quote, the power of the mind to think, understand, and form judgment by a process of logic, end quote. So make no mistake about it. In 1971, Brzezinski is stating that in the future technotronic era, which again is today, there will be the ability to instantly control people's ability to think logically or to reason properly with crisis events that would happen around them or to them. And I really, really need for you to think about where we are going and what we are going through right now. Let's remember again that the former director of the CIA, uh, 
George H.W. Bush in his presidency starting in 1988, we began to create the Internation Trade Packs that moved our jobs to Canada and to Mexico. And at the same time, we were busy moving millions of people to our nation without any idea of who they were. The same continued in the Clinton era with mass immigration, sharing technology, and military hardware all being shared with China and exporting our nation's engine of production to everywhere but here. Now, George W. Bush's presidency was basically his father's presidency and the Clinton administration on steroids, creating the massive all-knowing intelligence state and signing UN and World Economic Forum-backed climate agreements basically giving away our national sovereignty, while fighting needless wars that cost trillions of your dollars. And meanwhile, the ideological cancer that would lead to creeping Marxism in our schools, in our churches, in our government, would be introduced both by Democrats and progressive Republicans, folks like Mitt Romney and George W. Bush. Just like how Eisenhower had warned 60 years ago the things that Kennedy had warned about 50 years ago. The shaping of the world in the way that Kissinger and Brzezinski had foretold. All of it happening. Exactly the way that they said it would in the technotronic future, which is now, with central banks and corporations in the control seat and sovereign nations relegated to nation-states who take the back seat to the whims of the tech giants, who bow their knees to giants like BlackRock, Vanguard, and others. And there were two disruptive events that threatened to spoil the strategies and plans that have been in place for decades. The first would be Brexit. And the second would be the election of Donald Trump. And I want you to remember how the most resistance that came from Congress, and if you remember back in 2016, 2017, that Congress, both the House and the Senate, were completely controlled by Republicans. I want you to remember that the amount of pushback that Donald Trump received was from Republican leadership. And now you are hearing about both Democrats and Republicans joining together to spy on Trump, to derail Trump, to ensure that Trump never gets in office again. And maybe you'll understand that nearly all of Washington, D.C., and nearly all of state governments as well, and nearly all of international corporations and central banks throughout the World Economic Forum have known that this plan this strategy was coming. And they were fully dedicated to seeing it through. A motto or paragraph that is posted at the World Economic Forum's headquarters in Geneva is from the writer and philosopher Goethe. And this paragraph from Goethe is quoted over and over again by Klaus Schwab to those that are newly joining the World Economic Forum or to young leaders. And it reads as follows, quote, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back 
always ineffective, concerning all acts of the initiative and creation. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream, you can begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, they are fully committed to change our world, to change our lives, to change your future, and to shape your thoughts, to shape our philosophies, to mold our theology into their perfectly designed image. For what the world should be in their eyes It will not benefit you, but it will benefit them. This program contained just a few reminders, maybe some of these things you already knew, but you just need to be reminded of them. So as you see the mainstream media ignore the illegal spying and tampering with the Trump administration, as you see your currency destroyed and hyperinflation destroy your wealth, As you see tin-pot tyrants like Biden and Trudeau pull out the troops to stop your protesting. As you see the world leaders, even with the protests, throw Build Back Better into fifth gear. Just know this. You are at the very tip of a 150-year-long spear thrust into the chest of Western civilization. And I have two questions for you today. What are you made of? And what are you going to do about it? I'm Michael O'Fallon, and this has been Public Occurrences, Both Foreign and Domestic. (laughs) 